Hello, Cachimbones. I'm so excited to bring you episode four of season three of Radio Cachimbona. In this episode, I interviewed Sophia, who is a TPS holder and activist that was featured in the Netflix documentary Immigration Nation. She organizes with Comunidad Colectiva, and we had a really great discussion about the precarity that TPS brings to people's lives. And this was before the federal decision that greenlit Trump's rescinding of TPS for Salvadorans. So we didn't discuss that, but the conversation that we had about the precarity that TPS has always had on Salvadorans is very poignant. If you wish that this conversation had lasted longer, well, you and I are in the same boat because I had to end the interview earlier than I would have liked to because something from my work came up that, as a lawyer, came up that I had to attend to. And just want to remind you all that this podcast is something I put out despite having a very demanding full-time job. And if you want to help support me so that I can transition to podcasting full time, then you can become a patron. Uh, it really helps with the, the, I think, you know, rightfully compensating the intellectual labor, but then also just on a concrete level, it helps me buy the books that I, that I buy for the lit review and pay my marketing operations intern Maybelline who makes the graphics for the episodes and helps the podcast gain visibility that way. Another great way to help the podcast is to leave an Apple podcast review. And another way to support is to follow at Radio Cachimbona on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I hope you all enjoy this interview. I am very excited to be interviewing Stefania Atiaga today. Stefania Atiaga is an organizer with Comunidad Colectiva, and she was recently featured in Netflix's documentary Immigration Nation. Stefania, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today and wanted to ask how you're doing. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm doing well. I'm doing pretty okay. It's a good summer day in North Carolina. <laughs> So, actually, I did have a question about that because Colectiva has VA capitalized at the end of it, right? No, so there's another Colectiva in okay, Virginia. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. And are you all related? Do you work together in any way? Or are you all just kind of independently doing the work? No, we're independent entities. Okay, cool. I didn't find out about them until, like, recently on social media. <laughs> okay, got it, got it. Yeah, actually, I found out about them through the Netflix documentary as well. But I do have a friend, Ale, who lived in the D.C. area and did organize with them as well. I'm oh, based neat. in Tucson now. Yeah. Oh, man, you are way out there. Yes, I'm well, from- you're in North Carolina, so that's also its own beast. 
Oh man, I prefer the southern heat though. <laughs> oh, instead of the dry desert heat? Oh yeah, I was in Phoenix for like a week and I only went out twice and I was <laughs> so sick. I will say Phoenix is generally 5 to 10 degrees hotter than Tucson and also I think Tucson has charm and Phoenix is just a large <laughs> city that's really hot. Yes, it was, I was quite miserable, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I think most people are when they're in Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that you're Salvi, and I'm Salvi as well. You might have been able to tell by the the name of the podcast, Radio Cachimbola. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So something I've talked about a lot about on the podcast is how Salvadorians and other Central Americans have been systematically denied asylum, even though... The U.S. has had such a central role in propping up authoritarian governments that then can't protect its citizens and how this that has caused precarity in folks' lives and wanted to ask if you could speak to how the precarity of TPS has affected your life. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think, yes, to all those things that you've said. So I came to the U.S. when I was just seven years old. I think I was in the verge of turning seven or the verge of turning eight. I don't remember very well, but I think my parents always instilling in me this potential change in our lives. <laughs> if we weren't renewed for another 18 months or if my grades were up to date or if, God forbid, there was a workplace raid around the area we live. We actually, I actually grew up in for a period of time in New Bedford, Massachusetts, which is an, another hub for Central America. There's a lot of Salvadorans, Guatemaltecos, mm. Hondureños there. And we, I lived through one of the biggest workplace raids in the Trump administration. And thankfully, my oh, wow. family had TPS. And so we were fine. But that, that, that raid really led to the downfall of my family's well-being and our eventual move to North Carolina. And so I think for many Tepecianos, it's just a constant limbo that we're in, right? We're consistently seeing more and more pressure put on Central American countries to prevent migration of people who mm -hmm. are, I mean, I don't know if we can curse. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, my podcast is explicit just because I, I do want to be able to curse. I don't curse on every episode, but okay. I definitely curse a lot in life and in definitely on the show. So okay. feel free, feel free, feel free. Feel free. Yeah, def uh, so yeah, I mean, I think definitely, I think that's a growing frustration also because in Charlotte, where I live now, we do have a really large Salvadoran population. And I was talking to an organizer friend. It's, there's really just a few of us who are Central American organizers. There's just mm -hmm. me, Guatemalteco, and an Andoreño out there. And so we're just, Charlotte is one of the areas that denies asylum rates at a faster rate. There's only a 2% approval rate at our immigration court. Mm. And most of those wow. cases... Yeah, most of those cases are Central American migrants. And so definitely when I started getting involved in this movement, it was just really connecting the dots around policing and, and immigration and just the different layers of policing of our people that have forces to migrate thousands of miles and, you know, become these refugees that aren't really accepted by this government who wants to turn a blind eye to all the things that they have done in the past and continue to do. And so a lot of the people that have been deported in, in, in Mecklenburg County and uh, where Charlotte is at are the top three are Salvadorans, Hondurans, and Mexicans, you know, wow. so it's all our people. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I'm curious about how your family ended up settling in Bedford, Massachusetts, and you mentioned that it's a hub for other Central Americans. Do you know a bit about that history and how that started? Yeah, so it all goes down to the barrio my family was from in El Salvador. I think it was called El Barrio Lourdes. And my grandmother owned a diner up there in around the 80s. She left, as you know, it was like early, mid-70s, she left El Salvador and then came to to L.A. where we had conocidos um, Mm because there was other people del barrio who were there. And then some way, somehow, it, it's always that one person from your barrio that like ends yeah. up somewhere, you know? Mm-hmm. And then some way, somehow, she ended up relocating up the Boston area in Everett and Chelsea. And that's honest. I, it's really wild because I hadn't gone back to that area since I was 13. I left when I was 13 and came back recently. And it's just crazy how house after house it's like so and so who lived on the street from so and so and who had xyz shop so it was just really the migration story of i guess the people who lived in in this barrio that was well known for being very dangerous during the war and so you know when my family made the, the decision to to leave el salvador in the early 2000s it was a no-brainer we were going to boston mm. what were your experiences like growing up in that area Oh man, it was it was wild. You know, it's post nine eleven. I was uh, like, I was uh, probably like, I was in elementary school, and this was really when immigration started ramping up. ICE became a thing, and so it was very difficult. You know, like not speaking the language. I remember people calling me stupid and mm. all these things, and having to repeat a grade, and because I didn't speak English correctly, and then and then in the middle of that, the, the ongoing financial crisis. So we lived in New Bedford. And like I mentioned before, there was this big raid that happened in our town. And I remember we were really, we were one of the fortunate families because we had a status. And so I remember that throughout that week when the raid happened, my parents were really, really involved with our local Catholic church at the time. And there weren't really, you know, there wasn't really a social, uh, a safety social, social, wait, safety social net. <laughs> social uh, safety net, yeah. Social safety net, it's like a tongue twister. Yeah, <laughs> so there really wasn't a safety net. And so my dad, he was a construction worker. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. And we had just bought a stack house. And for folks that don't know what a stack house is. Yeah, I was going to ask. What the- yeah. <laughs> so New Bedford or in, throughout New England, they're pretty common. Also, like the further north you go, they're more common. But they're just basically these massive, like three, sometimes four story houses. And they're just apartments. So each each okay. level is a different apartment. And so the first house we moved in, my dad ended up buying. And so my parents bought the place and then this raid hit. And all these women and children that had been, you know, left behind because usually, you know, oh, wow. as it always goes, the breadwinners always get picked up. And so we ended up taking like, God, I don't know how many people moved in to our second and third floor, but we had a good five to seven families plus kids wow. all living together. And this was like before the financial crisis. And so, you know, um, Helping my mom doing diaper collections, formula collections, helping out pass las cosas necesarias para cada familia para no que yeah, tuvieran algo. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
and just seeing like this is this is a, definitely a contrast to what i've seen here like definitely seeing not that representatives really give a fuck but <laughs> <laughs> seeing elected officials actually showing up and trying to figure out how to provide assistance to family i thought that that was very different and definitely a sharp contrast to what happens in the south because anything happens in terms of enforcement and yeah you know definitely look, in the south they're like what immigrants live here like what <laughs> yeah. So, yeah it was just really wild and i think my dad i think that really enhances paranoia about how we can't d- divulge where we're from mm-hmm. we couldn't tell folks where we were from we had us memorize hospitals he had us like be extra twice as good at school because he wanted to make sure that whatever happened to those families didn't happen to us I was really moved in the documentary seeing how you all had a community meeting in North Carolina where you confronted the ICE public affairs officer and you were asking, you and the community members were asking where these heads of households were that had also in a similar way had been arrested and deported in in enforcement actions. And just wanted to ask how what what your responses and thoughts are on Obama's felons not families discourse and how he and the administration that he ran played a large role in perpetuating this false narrative that undocumented people or people who are criminalized don't have families and I thought it was like the documentary did a really important job of showcasing how despite people want people wanting to otherize or make undocumented immigrants foreign, mixed status families are the norm. And you can't deport the undocumented head of household without affecting U.S. citizen children. Or, or undocumented children either way that are residing in the U.S. And that, I think, is an under-discussed aspect of immigration enforcement because there was such an uproar in the summer of 2018 about the family separation happening at the border. And I would like folks to realize that the immigration system itself is necessarily one that create that does family separation every single day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of a North Carolina perspective, you know, North Carolina is very interesting because our migration is relatively new into this area. It has a lot to do with just lack of lack of labor rights. (laughs) We are actually the second largest banking district in the country. And so you have a little tiny southern town that all of a sudden wants to provide all this whatever interest in it because of the trying to build this financial district, they're wanting cheap labor. And so, and then at the same time, we have a coastal region that's really volatile. We we are actually one of our coasts is like the coast that gets hit with uh, the most amount of hurricanes Mm -hmm. per year. And so all of that combined really brought in this wave of new migration, actually from Texas to begin with in the, in the late eighties, early nineties. And so 
that's all to say that our people and in our infrastructure for our people is relatively new and it really created this opportunity i would say for ice to really try to gain some ground by creating these networks right to to deport our people and so by that i mean is it wasn't until the late 2000s that we had an immigration court in the region in charlotte mm. And it in, in actually Mecklenburg County, where we reside, was the first county east of Phoenix to have a 287G agreement with ICE. So for folks who don't know what that is, it's a it's a contractual agreement between ICE and local sheriffs to deputize sheriffs as ICE agents to deport people. Mm-hmm. And so all this level of escalation was built. I mean, shit, our jail was being ran as an immigration detention center and people didn't know. So this this program that our community bought into, and by that, I mean, I wouldn't say the Latino community <laughs> yeah. bought into. And then we really saw the side effects. So in that, there's a meeting in the, in the documentary and we're in that space. We're all talking about what life after 287G is going to mean. Mm-hmm. And in that room, we had families that had been organizing for years to stop their deportations because they had a flat tire, because mm-hmm. they were waiting for help on the side of the road, because somebody called the police because they were in the neighborhood that they were trying to work in. Mm-hmm. All these different scenarios. And I think what's going on, I mean, for years, immigration advocates and organizers have been calling Obama the deporter in chief. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's making the situation differently, right, is because Trump's election has impacted another subset of the of 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 the general population, right? White people. Right. <laughs> Let's be real. I have a friend who really calls it a white amnesia, right? Waking up the white folks because they're realizing that their life is impacted in some XYZ way. And then they're taking notice of what's happening. So I think crazy shit was happening all across North Carolina. We had kids, Central American kids being picked up on bus stops in wow. 2016 and it was very hard for 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 people to even grapple that that was a possibility right and so mm-hmm. i mean i am i'm glad people are seeing what ice really is i'm glad that this documentary is giving people a, the opportunity across the country to look at that but that, that what is shown is just probably a quarter of or if even so of what organizers is directly impact that people have been saying for years Yeah, definitely. Can you speak to what happened in your county after 287G ended because I saw that you all ran a successful sheriff campaign intervention to get the 287G ice-loving immigrant-hating sheriff out but and then there was a sheriff who did really understand that it is not helpful to his job to be doing immigration enforcement. But ICE's response to that was this very gross, we're going to make an example out of this county so that other counties don't get the idea that by cutting 287G contracts, 
they can get ICE presence out of their county and actually ramped up their enforcement. And they were doing these clandestine private unmarked car pickups, which have gained notoriety because of Portland. But in the documentary shows that ICE has been doing that years prior to Portland to undocumented people in North Carolina. So so with Comunidad Colectiva, we ran what was what's called a C4 campaign and where we were involved in the electoral process, really educating folks, not only who the candidates were, but who the candidate that was go- that we believed the people could push to accomplish the goals that we wanted. So we didn't only focus on 287G, but we also focused on bringing back in-person visitation. So the previous sheriff was not allowing people to go into the jail and see their loved ones, and it, it was actually charging oh. them. What? Yeah, he was charging them to do so through a private company. And North Carolina was actually the last state to, basically, if you were a 16 and 17-year-old in North Carolina, you would be tried as an adult. Mm. And so our jail was one of the jails that was putting a lot of of 16 and 17-year-olds in solitary confinement. And so we wanted an end to that as well. And so during the campaign, you know, we really emphasize having, looking at immigration, not looking at immigration in a silo, but looking Mm -hmm. at immigration as part of the mass incarceration system, right? That is profiting off of black and brown bodies. And really, this work came to be because in 2016, there was a lot of work that was done after Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department murdered Keith Lamont Scott. So there's a lot of coalition building that was created from this moment of acknowledging our collective, our need to more like the way that our liberation is connected to each other. Right? Yeah. With all that, you know, once we started launching the campaign and we started getting momentum, started working in coalition with a lot of other partners, we started seeing a lot of attacks from ICE. So Erwin Carmichael, who was the incumbent, was actually working with ICE's PR person, Brian Cox to get on Fox News National, to create his talking points around the issue, to do all these things, to try to to really tell Mecklenburg County voters that this was the only way, right? Like the way, best way to keep Mecklenburg County quote unquote safe was by Mm -hmm. collaborating with ICE. And so we really made sure we pushed the issue and really did a lot of community education working with folks to help to do, do some do a lot of teach-ins and just try to talk to each other about what was going on. And so throughout that whole campaign, ICE kept on saying, we're going to retaliate, we're going to do enforcement. And our response was like, what? Are you kidding me? You always do enforcement, regardless, with or without 287G. You always did right. enforcement, right? That doesn't change anything. You were picking up kids at bus stops in front of schools, <laughs> right? And so we knew that, that they were going to do that regardless, Mm. And so very much our mindset is, all right, cool, they're going to do that. Well, let's make sure we have organized communities that not only know their rights, but we also have allies that have citizenship privileges to go ahead and record and act as legal observers when operations are going down. And so what we did is, you know, we trained a whole bunch of, I think we've trained up to 200 people at this point. Whose, whose whole role is to record ICE operations. And so, mm-hmm. and, and at the same time, you know, when these operations were happening, they were getting people right, side out, right outside of their door or they were banging their door until they opened up. And I, I, I do feel like we've done some progress in terms of really showing people that, you know, what their rights are. Like, don't open a door. They don't have to come in unless they have a warrant. What is it? A order of removal does not mean that they have access to your home, right? Mm-hmm. 
And so doing all that community education was really helpful, I think. These are folks who are emboldened and have no oversight. They're a rogue Definitely. agent. They are. And so, I mean, I think at the end of the day, if you give, honestly, an institution like this one that really likes to be, to, I mean, I, they get off, I guess, on terrorizing communities because you see that on the documentary, right? You see like this drive, even, you know, even on the last episode, when you see a paramedic talking about how he just helped this guy's, helped this guy who was picked up at the border, but then he starts bragging about how he likes to wear down immigrants who are tired after walking days and days without little food and water. So, I mean, that's all to say that we need to abolish institutions like ICE mm-hmm. uh, because and they don't patrol. make us safe yeah. and border patrol because they don't make us safe right. um, at all. Yeah, I really appreciate you reframing ICE's narrative of retribution towards your organizing because I think that that's such a critical point and that's this is something that resonates with work in Arizona as well. Our opponents are cruel people. (laughs) They are rogue and they have been, their ideology has formed them to be, to enact cruelty business as usual. And I think that sometimes the, the fear of the backlash from this very powerful rogue agency stops people from being audacious and bold in their organizing goals and their messaging. And I really, really appreciate that you all in North Carolina already knew that ICE was going to, to be doing egregious things, like you said, kidnapping kids from bus stops. And that really the response to that is community education. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the retaliation didn't stop there. We were still fighting it to this day. What people don't know is that beyond that, beyond our win, right? So we in Mecklenburg County got a head start in our campaign. But after our campaign, two other counties decided to do the same thing. And so within a span of about, I want to say five months, a third of the most populous counties in North Carolina did away with their collaboration with ICE. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. And so I think it's, it's, it's also really amazing for a Southern state, you know, people sometimes like to celebrate the wins in LA or in California, New York, Colorado, Oregon and whatever, but for the South, these are big wins. That's huge. I mean, that's it huge, is huge in the North as well. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it technically is North Carolina, right? So technically, yeah. for taking some time out of your day to chat with me. These were all of the questions that I had for you, but just wanted to ask if you had any closing thoughts before we sign off. Yeah, I mean, I think the powers and community at the end of the day, it doesn't matter your status. None of us who were launching this campaign had the ability to vote where we are not mm. U.S. citizens and we mm-hmm. created community power. And that's all to say that in unity, 
their strength and there's a collective voice. And there's an important to an importance of connecting immigration enforcement to the broader mass incarceration machine and the importance of making those connections so we can fight for collective liberation and yeah, everybody should be an abol- uh, abolitionist. <laughs> yes, everyone should be an abolitionist. Exactly. That's the goal of this podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, amazing. I hope we one day get to meet in person. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you.